Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we are delighted to welcome Mayor Stan Pulliam, the mayor of wonderful Sandy, Oregon. And so we're meeting here from Stan's house out in Sandy. So, Stan, welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome to my home. Yeah. Good to have you. Thank you for having us. So, uh, you've been in the national news lately for uh, both the New Year's Day reopening as well as you were recently interviewed by Willamette Week for talking with uh, Commissioner, what was her name? Uh, Commissioner Jaya. Sushila Jayapal. Okay. Yep. I, that was, <laughs> I was going to mess that up. Well, I, I practiced <laughs> it a couple times. <laughs> so uh, you've been in the news lately. So why, do you want to just give us a little bit of background about why you've been in the news lately and what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, we're talking a month back, uh, shortly after the second uh, shutdown of our local Main Street small businesses. Uh, I had several on my phone just started ringing off the hook. And then eventually I, I received a text message uh, from a local small business owner, a restaurant owner who asked, said, Mayor, uh, would you come and meet with me at my business at three o'clock? And so I did. And as I walked through the doors, uh, here I found just about every local Main Street small business owner sitting there in her restaurant, uh, wanting an audience with their mayor. And so I, you know, I, I spoke to them and what they, they indicated was they said, Mayor, you know, we're ready to open. And I don't talk too much about this, but they were ready to open that Sunday. So we're talking, <laughs> it's like Wednesday and they're, they're ready to go. And I, you know, when you're mayor of a community that's your hometown, like Sandy is for me, you, you feel this enormous weight, um, on your shoulders, uh, of responsibility. And so that day was no different. You know, I, I talked through, you know, what we as a city control, and then probably more importantly, like what we don't actually have power over. You know, we just recently had a city council meeting where we talked to our police chief and they were taking an educational approach. And so they didn't really have a lot from our local police department to worry about. Uh, they also didn't need to worry about our local Sandy licenses. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, it's more of a revenue generator, <laughs> uh, like a lot of those than anything. And so they weren't looking to, to lose that. Spoiler alert, the revenue generators, <laughs> the other levels too. Yeah, yeah right. Right. Now, 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 I didn't institute that business license. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be clear about that. Uh, but, you know, the important things, as I said earlier, were what we don't have control over, right? Which is the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, mm-hmm. um, OSHA, uh, Oregon Lottery Commission. And that's all under the governor's purview. And so making sure that there was understanding of really the risk of that. And they, they pretty much said, well, shoot, uh, Mayor, you know, we're still ready to open. Uh, what, what should we do? And my recommendation at that time was, is I just, I couldn't, if I was them, 
uh, consider opening against the mandate, knowing the ramifications that can come down. Like I mentioned to him, I think we had 12 businesses. And that for Mayor Sandy, I mean, that was very impressive. But at the end of the day, that's that's a Wednesday, right, for the governor. Right. Uh, she can come down on them tremendously hard. So as I told him, I said, the only way I would do that if I was in your position is under some kind of mass opening. You know, a together we stay, united we stand, divided we fall kind of a scenario. Sure. And they said, well, we have another meeting over in uh, in uh, Fair view at uh at five o'clock will you go to that she said all right fine so i walk in and it's like three times the crowd and mm. and these folks are ready to open and, and now they're surrounding communities of gresham and troutdale and wood village and and everywhere and from there it really just it started to snowball and started to grow on itself uh, i was invited to uh, a similar event over in tigard that following sunday had uh, several hundred people there from businesses all over the west side and that's where the New Year's Day really started to come from is we started talking about, all right, so what's a day that we can kind of target uh, that's recognizable. Everybody knows New Year's Day. Uh, a lot of jokes about 2020, right? And, yeah, sure. and, and the ability to put 2020 behind us and, and start the year anew. And really it was that day that that really kind of started getting out there, a, an idea for New Year's Day. Uh, as I continued that following week, we had those same kind of business coalition meetings and I was getting the feeling that we were going to open. And sorry to kind of, uh, you know, be long of breath on this, but no, it's fine. Uh, at that point, they're saying, all right, we're opening, we're looking at January 1, and we started getting in all kinds of back and forth as to what that would look like. Uh, some people wanted to open with no masks, no social distancing, they were over COVID, right? Others wanted the exact opposite. They wanted to open, but very safe. And I came home that evening, and I talked to my wife, Mackenzie, and I just, I feel a sense of responsibility and like this, this movement really had a leadership moment in front of it, uh, that, uh, people were opening, uh, some were opening previous to New Year's day cause they just didn't even have the time to wait that long. Uh, some were op- going to open the days after, but everyone was opening under different criteria and COVID is real. I'm one that believes that COVID is real. And I believe that, uh, you know, we should do what we can as people using personal responsibility to do what we can to prevent the spread of COVID. Uh, so it was then that I'd really sat down and started uh, writing my open letter uh, to the governor that set forth what a New Year's Day open would look like. And with that, we talked about, you know, just going one level under what the governor had. So in these counties that she has designated extreme, we would open high. So we would have face masks, social distancing, sanitation. And I really felt that was an important moment for the movement because now today we have several businesses open. We've got a lot of restaurants and pubs. Uh, we have fitness centers that are open. And when I go and visit these, I take great pride in the fact that I see people wearing face masks and social distancing and, and doing the proper sanitation. And and it, it, people ask me, they say, you know, Mayor, deaths are on your watch, you know, on, on, on COVID. And where I push back is I say, one is, is, what would it have looked like if I hadn't been part of the movement? And pushed uh, for, you know, the face masks and all the, the safety measures. And then on top of that is, you know, these businesses, where's the evidence? You know, where's the scientific proof that they are contributing, you know, that more so to the spread of COVID-19 than the big box stores in corporate America? You know, especially when you think about when all this was going on was during the holidays – uh, people would go to the mall and to these big box stores and pack in doing their Christmas shopping, yet they couldn't support a local mom and pop small business. And probably even more tragic than that were those business owners. It was the employees who yeah. were uh, now out of a job. 
was struggling to get their unemployment, the amount of money that they were able to get wasn't meeting what they were used to really bringing home after tips and everything else. And here they were going into the holiday season. So imagine what it feels like to be one of these employees out of job, have your family at home. You're not able to provide for them, you know, during the, during the holidays. And yet you see everybody else packing in to big box stores to do their, their shopping. So that's what it was all kind of all about for us was supporting these local mom and pop businesses and their employees as well. Well, and everybody's trying to get, you know, get away from, you know, Jeff Bezos, billionaire, evil overlord and all these kind of things, you know, think local, shop local, all these kind of things. And now we don't even have the opportunity to do that. We're still going into Home Depots. We're still going into Walmarts. But like you say, you know, the mom and pop shops. And I, I guess I'd be curious for your thoughts on this as well. I just today, Gavin Newsom in California rescinded the stay at home orders. And I'm wondering if you feel any kind of, I get, you know, vindication may not be the right word, but kind of maybe any feeling of, you know, Hey, yeah, the science was on our side. We are able to do this and take precaution. I mean, viewers can see listeners can probably hear I'm wearing a mask right now. My, mm-hmm. my wife asked me to, we're seeing her parents later this week and I made that personal decision. Sure. I, I don't want to get murdered, but I made the decision on my own. And I'm just wondering if you kind of feel any, I guess vindication and saying, you know, we can do this, we can do this safely, and we can do this and continue to support our community members. Well, I, I absolutely do. You know, especially with some of the national uh, media appearances that we were getting, I think talking a lot about the double standards, especially in regards to uh, COVID-19 and these shutdowns really had an impact. Uh, it was shortly after that Governor Cuomo in New York came out and said, you know, we need to open up these local uh, small businesses. Shortly after him, we had uh, Governor uh, Littlefield, I'm sorry, Mayor Littlefield of Chicago, uh, saying that we needed to re, uh, to reopen these local Main Street businesses, and then of course you mentioned, you know, what, what just recently happened uh, at a state next door. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, and and that's one of the things I asked Commissioner Sushila in the back and forth with Willamette Week is, is hey, why don't you join on to these other members from the left and wanting to open up these businesses? We would love to have a Multnomah County Commissioner join on the cause. Lori Lightfoot, Andrew Cuomo, pretty good Democrats. It's you know they're not Trumpy MAGA Republicans, whatever. <laughs> well, and I keep hearing from Democrats is that, you know, we're, we want to be the party of the working class, you know, working families. And so when push comes to shove right now for, for the working class and working families, where are you? Yeah. Well, I think that just shows exactly how far the left has abandoned the working class. You know, the thing that irritates me the most about COVID is just the, you're using exactly one metric to to decide whether or not we are fighting COVID well enough or whatever. And that is the number of cases or the number of deaths. I guess that's two metrics, but basically the same thing. Uh, they are not considering things like the achievement gap and kids in schools who many low-income kids of color who have not been to school in a year, who are now a year behind their peers. Like We're not even talking about that. We're not talking about the small businesses that are going out of business. We're not talking about the employees that you're talking, that you're, you're referring to. And like those need to be part of the calculus. You need to say, this is how many people are catching the disease. This is how many people are dying. And also here are the other things that are, that are being impacted by the government action. And I think what you did and what we should be doing as a state and as a nation is saying we can relax some of these these restrictions based on science or lack of science and still prevent people from catching COVID. I think that what we've discovered now is that there are is a pretty good way to avoid getting COVID. It's wear a mask and socially distance. Like that's, that's it. And so if you can do those two things, the rest of it is extra. 
And it just it irritates me to no end that we're forcing, just to your point, you're, we're forcing these businesses. We're eating outside. I, I went to dinner the other night with uh, with my wife and, in downtown Portland, and there was a tent outside, and they had put down a floor, and they had heat lamps, and they had tables and waiters, and it was for all intents and purposes indoors, but it was in a tent, and therefore it was allowed. And but at the same time, you know, you you the gyms and fitness centers are shut down but best buy is wide open and it's just that the the inconsistency across the board is so frustrating and it's not based on any it's not based on any science it's based entirely on politics mm-hmm. and that's the thing that irritates me is it she kate brown will lie through her teeth when she says this is all based on science because there's no science justifying any of this it's all based on politics it's all based on what she thinks is going to make her supporters happy this is why teachers are getting vaccines before elderly Right. The, the elderly are dying at 20 a day. How many teachers are dying? With apologies to Madeline. Well, she did, she's not dead. <laughs> she's, she's not dead. Unless something but, bad happened in the last hour. <laughs> but seniors are dying at an alarming rate. And why are we not vaccinating them? We're, instead, we're vaccinating teachers. Uh, no, that's right. And it's a couple of things you said there. One is, is, you know, NFIB has said that we're going to lose 25% of businesses along our main streets over the next couple of months. And think about the ramifications of that. You know, these local main street small businesses are the heartbeat of our communities, communities like Sandy all throughout the state. Uh, we just had a... Uh, small businesses make up something like 60% of the economy, right? Yeah, that's right. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you think about the year we've gone through, this global pandemic, unprecedented wildfires. As a mayor of a small community like Sandy, Every time we need a food relief center or something to give back to the community. So those local Main Street small businesses that we turn to, I mean, they truly are, are the lifeblood. And, you know, you know, you tapped in a little bit into the ramifications of this. You know, a lot of people talk about the current trends, but very few talk about our future. In fact, in my phone conversation with the governor, she said, you know, what do you want to be like, like Idaho? And I pushed back and I said, well, I certainly want Idaho's future. I want a vibrant Main Street, um, you know, communities throughout the state. I, I want our children in school and receiving the education they need. Now, think about this. So, Oregon was 47th out of 50 in graduation rates mm-hmm. pre-COVID-19 in the mm-hmm. lockdowns. We were 43rd out of 50 in education pre-COVID-19 in the lockdowns. So, now, you know, we're one of the few states to have these full shutdowns of, of virtual learning. You've got to imagine the ramifications of that. But then you started to talk about this, James, is, is the, hu- the huge inequities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's... So here in Sandy, we're lucky because, as you mentioned, we're, we're, we're on SandyNet. We're, that, that's what we're that's what we're utilizing right now. Is we have our own. We'll talk about this a little later, I'm sure. But we have our own broadband, high speed internet service. So people here in Sandy have been able to work from home. Their children have been able to do virtual learning. But a lot of communities aren't as lucky as Sandy, especially throughout all of rural Oregon and the suburbs. They don't have that same access to internet that our community is able to, and especially the larger cities like Portland, Eugene, and Ben. And so you think about the kids in these rural communities are access to virtual learning and what that environment's been like for them. But then you think beyond that. So you have, I hear all the time of parents having these learning pods where they're bringing yep. in tutors and you've got to be able to afford a tutor, mm-hmm. you know, quite honestly, to bring them in. And so the inequities are just continuing to grow and grow and grow. And I, I just, I wonder why it is conservatives that are continually having to point out these inequities, you know, well, that are going I, on right now. And it's never the left that's doing that. This is has to do with a larger populist movement, I think, in the Republican party that you know not not a huge trump fan but something that he kind of tapped into was this we are the party of the working man and the working woman and the democratic party has just totally left these people 
out on their own. Yeah. You know, and I think that this is probably an opportunity for the Republican Party is to reach out to these people. And I mean, you go back to your your Willamette Week discussion and just the arrogance and the elitism of the left and how they are they know what's best. And, you know, I was having these discussions on Facebook with some of my liberal friends who cannot wrap their minds around the fact that 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. Right. Like that is not a small fringe movement. That's half the country, you know, and so the the discussion was around um, white nationalism. And basically her point was, you know, Trump says all these things and none of like for all 75 million of these people, that was not enough for them to, that was not a deterrent for them voting for him. Hmm. It's like, but you have to look at it the other way around. Why did they vote for them? For right. him? If this, like, how can you vote for someone who is so appalling in so many ways? This is me speaking. My <laughs> my own uh, uh, rhino-ness coming out a little bit. Um, how can you vote for someone so appalling and has so, so many terrible things? What does that say about the Democratic Party? Right. That they are not able to capture all those voters. What does it say about, you know, the, the party of the elite that they are that these people are, aren't just flocking to the Democrats. They almost lost the election. Yeah, they, they did. Almost lost the election. They did. And they were running against Donald Trump. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Right. <laughs> You're running against Donald Trump and you almost lost. Right. Well, a lot of it's tribalism. A lot of it is, is us not venturing outside of kind of our own communities and where we live and we get involved in just kind of this group think, you know. But what a lot of people don't talk about is now President Trump obviously did very poorly in Oregon. Uh, he mm-hmm. only got around 39% of the vote. But 42% of his total vote in Oregon came in the Portland metro area. And so while we may, we walk around and we think, you know, this is the most liberal part of the state. It certainly is per capita. This is where all the people are. And so think about that for a second. 42, nearly half of Trump's vote in the state of Oregon came from the Portland metro area. And so there is a little bit of some, I think, waking up that people need to do to realize is that the people who are conservative or think differently than you, they're in your community, right? And yeah. a lot of them are your neighbors. And we need to be talking to each other about these differences because that's really the only way we're going to come together and heal as a country, quite frankly. You well, know, I did appreciate that, you know, that's what Willie Week, I think, was trying to do. We can, you know, to argue about how to, to what extent, because I thought you in, in that interview made a lot of really good points that I do not think necessarily were addressed by the Multnomah County Commissioner. But that's we we now have the discussion another time. But moving at least moving from Trump back here to Oregon, we're also in a we Republicans are in a, a pretty, pretty deep minority. We did pick up, I think, two seats in the state house and one net one. Net, in the, no, net two seats in the state Senate and one no, in the state House. Net, or net, net, net one in the Lost House the held and, and, and flat in the Senate. Net one in the is. House, flat in the net Senate. Net one in the House, flat in the Senate. There it yeah. is. So it, but it's, it's still, it's, it's pretty bad news out there for Republicans. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of Democrats that are elected to, to various parts of the state here. And we clearly see the state going in the wrong direction. I, we, we as Republicans and we, James and I on this podcast love to, you know, throw haymakers at Kate Brown for this failure and that failure. And I, you know, we, we could go on and on, but it's, it's all up and down the democratic board. There's just, there's bad leadership, bad policies and nothing ever gets challenged. What do you see as kind of the best way forward from that? What do you see as the best way to kind of get Oregon back to, you know, it's, it's, it's natural Oregon-y 
ness good economy good jobs yeah. tolerant of a lot of people everything yeah uh you know one is 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 just to get back to common sense uh common sense policies and, and common sense proposals um and i'll speak to that a little bit but the one thing i would point out is just what you said um uh, it, which is we got to point out that we got here how did we get here uh, you know, at one of the points going back and forth in the Willamette, we captured some of it, but not as much as they should have, is there was a right direction, wrong direction question that was asked. And the commissioner, you know, really laid out a lot of things that are going very wrong, you know, here in Oregon, from our homelessness issues to education, just a variety of different issues. And of course, you mentioned the, the Senate walkout and, and different things as well. And, you know, my follow up to that was, is I hope that readers take notice, because what we see here is it's one of the uh, elected leaders of the left admitting that we are going in the wrong direction. And to your point, uh, Nick, is that for the last three decades, we've had only Democrat control of the governor's office. Mm -hmm. For the vast majority of the last three decades, we've only had Democrat control of the state legislature. Uh, we certainly had left-wing control of the city commissioner's offices in Portland, county commissioner offices in Portland. And so here we are, right? After three decades, we, we leave the way in homelessness and mental health issues. We're last place in, in education and, and, and others. And so how do we how do we get back from that? And I think one is, is, as I said, highlighting just who got us here. And, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly <laughs> and expecting to have a different That's result. It. But the other is, is just not being out there ourselves and to offer an alternative vision to the major issues facing our state. Uh, one of them being just recently in COVID. Right. And, and the proposal that I put forward on businesses opening, we didn't just say open to our conversation earlier. We said, this is the manner in which you should open. Right. Mm -hmm. And showing that kind of leadership. And, and I think when you get to education and homelessness issues and in a variety, it's up to us, though. You know, we have to offer an alternative vision for Oregonians to consider uh, and to possibly vote for. Because right now, you know, just. On our side, I think back to the three, the last three decades and our campaign efforts and our candidates. I have a hard time when I go back and I think of individual names like ran for governor, for example. What, what, what did they stand for? What were their proposals? What was going to be like the big impact that they were going to make for our state? And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time thinking of those things. And so if, if as me, it's someone who's plugged in to this process pretty good and pays a lot of attention. If I struggle to, I can't imagine what our neighbors, you know, uh, what they would think of. Mm, so yeah. we've got to do that. We got to be articulate. We got to be bold. We got to be bold about our proposals because that's what people expect out of people right now. And, and they're elected leaders and they demand results. And I think that's a lot of what President Trump's success was, you know, over the last several years as well, was is, is, was being results-driven leadership. Even his biggest detractors, I think, appreciated that about him. One of the things that I think is frustrating to me about the Republican Party now is what does get news is that statement that the ORP sure. came out with just a few days ago about uh, condemning the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump and talking about a false flag attack on the Capitol yeah. and just, oh my gosh, the leadership needs to tone it down a little bit. And we talked about this on, if anybody listens to the Ali and Pistero show, I've been on there a lot lately and kind of, Alan made you, a really you interesting You've got to go point. on their show and plug our show. You can't use our <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, right. Yes, that's that's right. right. Man, Priority. We do. We do that. We do that frequently. You clearly don't listen to the show because that happens, that happens frequently. Um, no, Alan made a really good point that, you know, you, it's kind of the point that I made earlier. If 75 million people voted for Trump, why did they vote for Trump? 
And you kind of show that here in Oregon of there are good people in the Republican Party. Why are they mad? Why is this such an issue for them where the leadership feels like they need to come out with such an inflammatory statement? And I, I think that what I want from my party leadership is a bit more discretion when it comes to that kind of thing. I don't, I don't think that that was a good call on their part to post that, but it kind of, it shines a light on some of the, uh, some of the issues that are going on with, within our party and within just kind of the grassroots. And, but that's what people remember. They don't remember what Bueller stood for. And Nick probably knows because he was, uh, you know, worked on the, on the campaign. But what they'll remember is that the ORP put out a statement and called the attack on the Capitol a false flag attack. Sure. And so, like, we, we, it's both sides. I think we need to have a bold vision and also just like tone it down on some of the other things. Like, there's no need to even say that. Just, just be silent on the issue. And uh, there's not a lot I can disagree with there, James. But one thing I would kind of I like to remind people is, is, you know, the Oregon Republican Party is a fully volunteer ran organization. That's and true. so what we end up with is a lot of us, me included, uh, you know, we'll take umbrage with something that they said or they did. Uh, but, you know, we're not volunteering our time, you know, in, in changing the course of, of the Oregon Republican Party. And, and, and that's not to say, James, and I know you certainly have gone to a lot of a lot of, <laughs> of party events so you've certainly you've certainly volunteered yeah. your time but you know if but again you know people need to roll up their sleeves and get involved in these things if they want to you know see a difference and that is one thing i would say to people you know kind of in our party um in the republican party in oregon is is the oregon republican party does need our attention um it need it does need uh, and, and people within the party i think would say they need a breath of kind of fresh air and some new leadership. Um, you know, I was happy to see in Clackamas County, a lot of the delegates that were sent were first-time delegates, uh, young, hmm. you know, former young Republicans and young people um, getting involved. So I think that's good. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think we need to um, get involved and try to change things that we don't like. But another part to your point, and I don't know if it's necessarily the ORP, but we need to call a spade a spade. And we have an extremism problem um, mm. in this state, well, in this country, uh, mm -hmm. quite frankly, you know, especially in the wake of the events in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have an, an extreme right and we have an extreme left um, that I think we as, as as citizens need to come together and really talk about and have a conversation about. Uh, but you, what doesn't help is when, you know, you we try to engage in these thoughtful conversations like I tried to this last week with the Willamette Week. And we take the leadership to say, hey, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem on the extreme right. We've got a problem on the extreme left. And yet there's a total blind side to what's going on on the left. And, and to me, that's tragic, right? Because as, as leaders, if we can't step up and say, let's not vandalize storefronts. Right. Let's be against violence. <laughs> Novel right. concept. Like, like just normal stuff, right? Or don't, um, don't raid the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> you know, we, we should be able to do those things. And more importantly, people from both sides should be able to stand up in solidarity. Instead, we've got things. Ted Wheeler going down and marching with the protesters and getting tear gassed. Right. Like, dude, you're the mayor. 
Well, and how was he rewarded for that? He was, you know, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that he was punched in the face. Yeah. Uh, when trying to, trying to dine out. Sit out at a restaurant. Yeah. Sit out at a restaurant, which I condemned in the biggest, you know, terms is, is no public official elected, uh, person should go out with their family or anyone and worry about being punched yeah. in the face from True. someone that disagrees yep. with them. Right. Yep. And this came from the left, but they've been emboldened and not just the left. I'm talking the extremes yep, have been certainly. emboldened, you know, to stand up and act this way and we and the reason they are emboldened is because leaders from the left they embolden the extreme left and leaders from the right embolden members of the extreme right and we've got to be able to stand up and say you know what right right and wrong right and wrong this is what we're going to stand against totally agree so i'd be curious for your thoughts we in in 2018 uh obviously newt bueller won the won the primary and was the republican nominee for governor and he was a Almost a victim of the, the stars aligning. He had, he had run for statewide office before. He was, he had passed a lot of good legislation while he was a state rep from Bend. And he obviously, he had more money than God. He had all the, the <laughs> Phil Knight money yeah. and everything like that. But not as much as Kate Brown. <laughs> no, well, actually, still, no, yeah. He got outspent by Kate Brown. No, I know. Newt had more than Kate Brown. We had, I think, like $19 million. She, she had, had like 16 or 17. She or spent like 40. She spent forty million. Uh, we'll have to go look at the Orstar well, report. Well, there's Orstar, and then there's millions. all the uh, third party stuff. I know. Well, and that's true too. That's a very fair point. Well, this, that's no, true this, too. Is, this is something I, again I've been talking with Alan. Well, so, but about. I just I want to ask oh, real quick. Okay. What um we obviously we don't have that. We are the last person to run for statewide office was Joe Ray Perkins, who nobody's going to elect to anything. Joe, sorry if you're listening. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. We don't have a uh, real. I mean, I hate to say, but competent leadership structure at the at the party level this is i mean this is the things that they get the news for is putting out statements about republican congress representatives who aren't even from oregon what is the what should we as republicans be looking forward to and i I agree with what you say more people need to step up volunteers pcps get involved in chamber of commerce you know a a lot of different things at the you know at, at entry levels but what do we need to be looking for as we start to evaluate who's going to run for cd6 Who's going to run for Senate the next couple of times around? Who's going to run for governor in the future and really be the standard bearer for Oregon Republicans? Well, I think one is you've got to look for people who can relate. You know, you go back to the old adage, uh, someone that uh, you want to have a beer with, right? That, that's sure. always a candidate that has some sort of an advantage, or at least that's what I hear. And you think about um, for the last, I think it's four decades. I can't think of anyone who has had children in public elementary hmm. school living in the governor's mansion. And you wonder why we are ranking last in almost every educational category when no one has a day-to-day experience to have their, their kids in, mm-hmm. in public school, like in real time, right? Um, we, now, Dr. Bueller, right, was pretty well off. Dr. Bud Pierce uh, sure. was pretty well off. I think after years in the NBA, Chris Dudley was pretty well off. <laughs> um, and, and so what I would say is, is um, what is there to relate to with these individuals? What, what is it that middle class families that have two working parents who have kids in school that are trying to balance that now with virtual learning, right? And everything else. What is it about those individuals that we're relating to? You know, uh, how much college debt are those folks paying off? Are they, have they paid off their mortgage yet? Or are they just still, wor- you know, paying it down now? Or are they now working on their second, third or fourth home? Mm-hmm. And what, and what is relatable on that? And so I, what I think we need to be looking for is, you know, and again, I, you know, I don't like spending so much time talking about President Trump, 
but he was somehow like the richest, most unrelatable, <laughs> relatable person, you know, like yeah. like in the history of politics. And I, but that's what I think we've got to be looking for. We've got to be looking for authentic, straightforward um, candidates that kind of say it how it is. But probably more important than anything, are relatable. They're relatable. The challenges that they're facing are the same challenges that you and I and our neighbors are facing, and can speak to those and are thinking through it. And that, to me, is probably the most important item. Okay. I think that that's also one of the reasons why we've had such a struggle with COVID is that we've got Kate Brown and all of her people who have not experienced real life at all. You know, she graduated from law school. A year later, she was elected to the state legislature, and she's been a public elected official since she was 27 years old. That's right. She has no experience outside of running government. So, yeah, she's not going to prioritize small business. She has no idea what it's like to own a small business. She's not going to prioritize education, at least not in the right ways, because she she just doesn't have that experience. So I think that, you know, we talk about career politicians a lot on the right. And that's kind of the problem is when you spend your entire life, um, no offense to President Biden, but he's, he's another one of those guys who yeah. has no experience outside of public life. And okay, maybe he's great at the bureaucracy. Maybe Kate's probably a great bureaucrat, but she has no experience with what her constituents are, are going through. So that's, but you know, she's, a, she's got a D by her name. So, well, and this isn't the most through. popular thing to say, and I'll probably call you afterwards and ask you to edit this or something. <laughs> 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 or who who knows? <laughs> but you know, to your point, I think a big problem is, is compensation in the uh, Oregon state legislature. Uh, you know, we compensate our state legislators to such a small degree that it really leaves two categories of people that are able to look uh, to get in there, at least from what I perceive to be kind of the right center, right? Center right. And that that is, you know, extremely wealthy, kind of retired business business people who uh, were very relatable and could relate at one time, but have kind of moved on with their lives to something that we should all strive for. I mean, God bless them. Right. That's, you know, it's the American way, it's the American dream. But they're now beyond and they can afford to now be a state legislator or it's someone that's extremely young, uh, can live off of that, uh, you know, salary, doesn't have a family that they're trying to support or a mortgage. And my argument there would be is, is, do you want that person representing you that doesn't know what it is to have a mortgage and to have, right. you know, all these life experience? And, and so what that leaves is, is I think we have a hard time finding really quality candidates that are relatable from the right. And then what we end up with on the other side is, is a plethora of candidates because a lot of them come from the public sector, um, that have, or law firms, um, that have careers and jobs that allow them to do this at different stages of life. And it's a really hard environment. Environment to fight back against. But, you know, Oregonians deserve, um, you know, people from both parties that are at different segments of their life representing them. And, and the only real way to address that right now, I think, is to take a hard look at compensation in the state legislature. That yeah. won't be a popular move. I honestly, well, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. That's definitely, there's, the truth is there for a lot of different things, but you, you get what you pay for. And if you're only willing to pay somebody, Whatever a legislator makes twenty or twenty five thousand dollars a year. I think it's up to thirty now, but yeah. 30, there you go. Thirty thousand spending a year for legislators. You're yeah. gonna get thirty thousand dollars a year worth of legislative expertise. And they and say and they say, sorry to interrupt, but they say like, you know, it should just be a part time gig anyways. But when you're <laughs> meet when you're meeting every single year and at some point months on end for a year, I mean, good luck finding an employer 
right. <laughs> you know, that's not from the public sector that's going to be all in on something like and that. Not much, we, six months off. We talked yeah. to Suzanne Weber last time, and her race between the two candidates was uh, over $3 million. You're spending $3 million trying to win a race that you would get 30k a year for. <laughs> right. Like, holy crap. But that, this is... It, it's insane. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. But I mean, that's one of the reasons that I, I quit my job at Intel and started ProLift was I knew that if I want to have a life in public service, um, I'm not going to get paid for it. Right. I, I need something that is going to... Because yeah, Intel is actually pretty flexible and they may have been like, you know what? You can take six months off to go legislate. But I didn't want to bet on it. Right. And more than likely, what they would have had me do is you know, legislate from nine to seven and then do Intel emails from seven to nine or 10 or 11. And I wasn't really willing to do that either. So, right. Well, and so think about, think about what we just talked about. All these families that have dual working, you know, uh, dual uh, husband and wife or husband, husband, wife, wife, but dual, dual people working out of the same household and juggling all these things. Now imagine that you had to look at your partner and say, okay, so now I'm just, I'm going to go take on a job that pays half. Yeah tough to do or a third or a quarter depending right. on where you're coming from right but yeah so eat I, a lot of ramen yeah no <laughs> i i totally agree with you i think that that's that's definitely a way that we can can um help but yeah the left doesn't seem to have that problem because you know what central city concern wants to send one of their admin people to go hang out at the legislature for six months they get all sorts of you know positive benefits from the legislature they're they're all about that Whereas you're, well, in, we had Shelly Bossart Davis on on an episode several months ago, and she was telling us about how you know she shoehorned us in from three to four one afternoon, and had legislative business for the next couple hours, and then had her trucking business for a couple of calls that night or something like that, and then she's living on a farm, running the farm, and it's just like that woman has four jobs. How is what's going right. on here? What's the deal with this? That's right. So true. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, so it's kind of disappointing that, you know, you had this big moment on January 1st and then January 6th, the entire yes. world turned upside <laughs> down and uh, we kind of forgot about COVID a little bit uh, for about a month. And I think now that things are, I don't know, I gather the impeachment's still going on. So I guess we're still talking about that, but I think we're kind of slowly coming back to, to COVID. And uh, yeah, so are, are is there a next step is, or is that kind of the... Are more businesses in Sandy opening? Yeah. So uh, first is, is we continue to support all these businesses, right? And sure. so uh, for a lot of these businesses, it was about us supporting businesses that were at the end of the rope. They had no other choice uh, but to make this courageous decision to reopen against the governor's mandates. And so we've had several businesses that have opened. There's several in uh, our community that have opened and, and some that have gotten more attention than others. Uh, and there's a lot that have continued to open um, every day since. To your point, you know, we uh, weren't necessarily as out there after the uh, the events of January 6th for a variety of reasons. One is is that, you know, you've got to, um, you got to read the temperature a little bit, I think, as elected leaders and as leaders in and make sure that you're not contributing to anything that you might not want to be contributing mm-hmm. to uh, especially at the kind of the just the time we're at you know in our in, both here in Oregon and, and as a country um, but yeah so we have businesses that are opening we're still very supportive of them we have a legal defense fund that we started through the Freedom Foundation to help out any of these businesses so far you know they have some of them have been contacted by the governor's agencies and they're going through that process but it's been 
been, it's been pretty smooth sailing, um, I would say, quite That's honestly. Good. And so I, yeah, we continue to support these business owners that are looking at opening and, and we'll be there for them for sure. I wonder if there are any businesses being pushed underground through all this. I was half tempted. I mean, I'm not going to do this, but find a field somewhere, set up some tents, get a DJ, some kegs, charge admission, <laughs> don't register anywhere. And then when OSHA shows up, just walk away. Well, and what I would say, so what I would say is, is terrible. I, I am, I, it, well, it's, it's not so terrible because it's kind of happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, it, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Like, yeah. this is my thoughts. And I'm not, I mean, I would never do something like that, but I'm like, I wonder if somebody's doing this. So, so a couple of things on that one is I'm learning, you know, I, I always kind of question why the twenties were so cool. And now I know, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is nothing. I mean, there's very few things cooler than, you know, being in a speakeasy. And and so those are happening everywhere. And I've partaken in some of those. In fact, I've heard of different ones where you've got to, you know, kind of knock on the back door and know a password (laughs) and get in. And I said, you better believe I want to know about that, about that place. Uh, But that was, it's funny you mentioned that, James, because that was in my conversation with the governor, as I had mentioned to her. I mean, I'm not hiding. I'd mentioned to the governor that I'd been to a couple of these speakeasy type places. Yeah. And what I had reiterated to her is once you break that mandate, the man just to open your doors, all of a sudden nothing's off limits. Yeah. You're, so, you, so you're you're down to break whatever mandate you want. And what I told her, so now we have these businesses opening up everywhere underneath their own guidelines, whatever they see fit. And her decision really was, as I said, businesses are opening. <laughs> They are. They're opening yeah. today. They're opening tomorrow. Businesses are opening. The true leadership question is, is to the same one that I was faced with, you know, several weeks ago is what's the manner in which they're going to open and what kind of leader do you want to be to put forward the guidelines for them to follow? Uh, because it's just that, that first mandate that they break. That's the big one. Mm-hmm. You know, after that, it becomes different. Now for us, we kind of, we had that leadership moment where we said, if you're going to be part of this coalition, this is a manner in which you're going to open. But that's why people need leadership right now is to know, you know, how to open and, and those kinds of things. But not much cooler than a speakeasy these days. I, I'll, I'll tell you that. I need to find well, some of those. I, I've heard of them. I, have, I haven't. Uh, we can thank Kate Brown for making speakeasy. There you go. Cool again. Yeah, Got that one right. There you oh go. But I'd go. say, and honestly, the the other side of that coin is is not having you know not having businesses open, not having bars open. We've seen the data show super spreader events come from a number of people crowding indoors into somebody's house party and whatever. And like there were, you know, like a fraternity at the U of O though they had 200 cases or something like that. Cause everybody's cramming in. And it's like, well, what the heck else are people going to do if they can't go out to restaurants and bars and movie theaters like normally? Uh, of course, they're going to – you're just driving people towards these more contagious, more super spreader type events. And, it, I mean, I, it's been said ad nauseum just on this episode, but like – for the party that's supposedly pro-science, that doesn't seem very scientific. Well, there's a difference between being pro-science and pro-common sense, I think. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I hate to say this, but I think everybody probably knew an individual in school that was extremely well-read. Mm-hmm. And you would say, well, that individual's really book smart, but not necessarily street smart. And, you know, we need a little bit more street smart, <laughs> I think, right now in, in our government to be able to look, okay, what's practical? What actually makes sense here, you know? And when you think about New Year, this last New Year's Eve that we had, I mean, there were, to your point, house parties galore. Mm-hmm. Now, is that is that better 
uh, of people packing into homes that are not sanitized, most people not wearing masks and all those kinds of things, or going out to a place that is underneath the governor's guidelines that has sanitation, has face masks, and, and, and all those kinds of things. A lot of this to that point. It's, do you want people bringing people in for, uh, as someone who's active all the time, uh, who's an elected, I have meetings. We're always trying to figure out how to meet, right? How to do yeah. this podcast, how to meet and have coffee or, or lunch or all those things that we had to used to do. Now people are meeting in homes or doing different things when they used to be going to a sanitized place Mm -hmm. with social distancing with wearing a mask and just we need to get more practical to james's point earlier thinking of the totality you know of these decisions and just common sense that's the big thing so kate brown's got the book smart and stan pulliam has the main street smart well you know i'm not going to discount my book smart either (laughs) (laughs) stan pulliam's got both there There you go you heard it here listeners i think this goes to a sort of left-wing versus right laying left wing versus right wing mentality and how you view the government. And this is something that I living in downtown Portland have run into a lot with my left wing friends is they see the, and I think I've said it on this podcast before, but they see the relationship between government and the people as sort of a parent child relationship. The parent tells you to do something and you just do it because they're the parent. Whereas a right wing mindset is more like you take into account other things and is this going to be the benefit for me and and the government is not this all-knowing parent that is that has the absolute authority they're just one of many things that you consider when you when you decide what to do and Kate Brown and her and the people like her need to realize that not the entire state is not of this left-wing mindset that is just going to do whatever they're told regardless that's and, you know, when you make these rules, you have to understand that some people are not going to follow the rules. It's even just the same thing as like speeding. When you when you put up a speed limit, you have if you don't enforce it, people are going to if you don't enforce it every single time, people are going to break it. And so just it's this total misunderstanding of the, the characterization of people, of the of human nature that they think, you know, if we put these restrictions in place everyone's going to follow them. Right. And they're not. And that's exactly your point is there's another clear thing to you said a word there. That's kind of become a little bit of a pet peeve for me, which is authority. Uh. Who's, whose authority is it? You know, when the first thing that, that the governor pushed back on in a public statement again, against me was, is that the mayor doesn't have the authority, you know, to do this. And all I was doing was supporting our people, was uh-huh. supporting our, our business owners. I had never claimed to have some kind of legal, you know, authority. <laughs> in fact, it was the first thing that I had pointed out to these business owners who wanted to open. But the authority, however, seemed to be very important to this governor, that it was her authority and her decision whether whether it not to do it. And something I had, had needed to remind her was, is that my authority, her authority, any elected leader's authority comes from the people. the people. The people are our authority. And I think that's something that's really starting to get forgotten about in all of this too, is, is that we are elected public servants of the people. And so when we be making, when we're making these decisions, too much of what I'm seeing right now, and I feel the frustration. I've been in, um, public service less than others, but I, I see it. It's frustrating to have to always build compromise in our system. It's frustrating to have checks and balances, um, in our system. It makes you be a better person. It makes you be a better visionary. It's good to have compromise. But what has happened is I've noticed is too many politicians have seized 
on this emergency to be able to do what they want without checks and balances, without compromise. You think about the state legislature, and I don't care if you're a Republican state legislator or a Democrat state legislator, they are turning their backs on what their role is supposed to be in this entire thing. They're supposed to be the representative body of the people. There are elected representatives, yeah. and yet through a wildfire season, through pandemic, through all these mandates, uh, where are they? You know, where are they calling they on the governor? Ab- abdicated their responsibility to the governor. 100%. And, yeah. and people expect results out of elected leaders these days. I think that's probably a new tide in, you know, younger voters and stuff is they're looking for results. And uh, they're going to have to start showing a lot more results if they want to stay in office, quite frankly. Well, we are just about out of time. So, Stan, one of the things that we like to ask our listeners before we leave is, uh, who is your favorite Republican? Yeah. So, you know, I, I took notice that you guys like to do that. And, and so what I think I would, I'd go local and I think I would say, uh, Dennis Richardson, um, for a couple of reasons is uh, like myself, you know, Dennis had, was, it was conservative, you know, had a conservative viewpoint and outlook. Um, but the way in which he carried himself, you know, was one of openness and, uh, of, of listening to others and trying to find common ground and and implement kind of this common sense that we're talking about. He's also someone who throughout his career was continually underestimated and um, always kind of, you know, came through and surprised people. And me, one of, I was one of them. You know, I, I remember before he passed being able to share this with him. When he, when he was elected as Secretary of State, I was like, ho-hum. You know, mm-hmm. like, here we are, finally. We get a Republican statewide position as to that darn Secretary of State's office in a non-redistricting year. Like, great, <laughs> right? And look at what he stepped up and did just through his leadership and through what he did with the audits and that power and things that he exposed in the state. Just remarkable. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it was it, it would have to be, especially looking at modern times, Dennis Richardson is someone, I think, a Republican in this state that we should all aspire to. Good choice. Well, to more Dennis's. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that is about wraps us up. So, uh, Stan, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.